It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app and then you can listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show David Weitzer. He is an assistant professor of administrative studies at York University, my old school, and he (laughs) is at heart a philosopher who briefly became a music industry executive and has since spent nearly two decades in business schools, evolving into a professor of management who advocates for co-creation not management. And that's why he's here today to talk about an article he authored in theconversation.ca. It is entitled, Management is So Passe, It's Co-Creation That Workers Are Demanding. So you can check that out at uh, conversation.ca if you'd like to uh, read the whole article. And it's a pleasure to have David here. As I mentioned, uh, he's a professor at my old school. It's always a pleasure to have somebody on from York. It's uh, just nice to connect that way, I guess. Welcome, That's David. That's right, and it's great to see an alum doing well. So uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for the work you do. Yeah, you bet. Now, this article, um, Co-Creation, um, it, it caught my eye. I thought it was really interesting, sort of a, a timely uh, kind of a topic, I guess you might say, especially with COVID, because you tie it into COVID. I do. You know, obviously, most of COVID is bad. <laughs> most mm. of what's happening is bad. I don't want to say there's anything good in it. Mm-hmm. But if there's something that we can work with, It's that COVID has accelerated a trend that I think otherwise might have taken a decade to emerge, which is the realization that we're not going to go back to our workspaces if they're Mm. ugly and uncomfortable environments. So the shutdown around COVID and the opportunity for people to rethink has created an environment where businesses can't go back to the way things were. If they think people are going to re-enter the workplace to be exploited, to be taken advantage of, they're wrong. And the data is showing that, you know, we're in the midst of what some folks are calling the great resignation. Yeah. Because literally millions, millions of people are choosing to not go back to their oppressive workspaces. And so while COVID is bad, a global pandemic is bad, I am somewhat grateful for the acceleration in the timeline Mm. of perhaps a meaningful change in how we treat people at work. Now, you say that the great exodus, uh, great recognition of people. Yeah. Is there a specific uh, uh, age range of people that are falling into that? Because the reason I say that is as soon as you said that, I, I thought of, you know, when, I, when I'm on the highway or I'm watching the, the news, uh, I still see, like they say, like it's 85% or 90% of the traffic is back to what it used to be pre-COVID. And I went, well, yeah. where's the shift then? Who's, where are yeah. all these people going? Back to their offices? You know, you know it's an excellent question because I feel the same thing. You know, the, at least in Toronto, the city streets are not suddenly uh, less congested. Mm-hmm. But the data does show that a lot of people are going back to work. Now, to answer your question more specifically, is this a great resignation or a great retiring? Mm-hmm. That's unclear because mm-hmm. it does look like a lot of the folks who aren't returning to work do skew older. That is true. But what is also true is a lot of younger folks, particularly millennials, aren't leaving work, period, but they're leaving unsatisfying work environments. Right. So we are seeing a world where maybe the 50 plus are taking early retirement and 60 plus are taking you know normally timed retirement and not coming back. But we're also seeing younger folks 
who are still in the workforce, not returning to jobs that didn't give them this type of satisfaction. Hmm. Interesting. I want to come back to uh, your introduction. Sure. Because this idea around co-creative uh, environments, when I introduced you, I mentioned that you ha- were at one point uh, worked in the music industry as an executive. And the first yeah. thing I thought about is music is a very a co-creative kind of process. Now, as an executive, you may not, I don't know if you're a musician, but certainly that, that process of uh, a musician working with music is a co-creative process or the muse or whatever, as well as working with other musicians. It's co-creative. Um, so I'm wondering if some of your previous uh, experiences had an impact on this. 100%. 100%, David. Thank you for that because it gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit about my background. Mm. So I have two books out. Um, The first book I put out is a book called 15 Paths. Yes. And 15 Paths was about a disillusioned business professor, me, (laughs) who got (laughs) tired of speaking to CEOs and business people about business and creation. And so, in fact, I went back to my artistic hero, folks who I worked with in the music industry. So Mm. exactly what you're saying, where I realized that musicians have a lot to tell us Mm. about co-creation. And so I interviewed folks like Lee Ronaldo, Sonic Youth, Nels Klein of Wilco, Lydia Lunch, my punk and rock and roll Mm. heroes Mm. to talk about business Mm. and creation and what we can learn. And, And it was a beautiful and meaningful and powerful experience. And it led to my next book, which is Connected Capitalism, yeah. where I realized that the language that we need is a spiritual language. Mm. And it was so interesting to find artists, musicians, you know, folks in theater, they're so comfortable using spiritual language. And often in the workplace, we're not. And it was that thinking that led to the article that we're talking about today, co-creation, which is really, it's a truth that's known in spiritual communities. Right. It's a truth that's known in artistic communities. And it's only now slowly, slowly, slowly (laughs) penetrating the business world, which is that we have a lot to learn from artists, from spiritual folks, from leaders in, I'll say, non-capitalist settings about how to do capitalism better. And so I think you're, you're exactly right. And I think that's where a lot of my inspiration came from, which is watching musicians and other artists do what we want to do in business, get together with people who you may not know to come together with an audience who are your customers and create something beautiful and meaningful, either on stage in a live or improvisational environment or on record. And that's what we do in business too. You know, that's mm-hmm. the heart of innovative business is feeling each other out, creating something different, trusting each other, being vulnerable in that space so that you can channel and create something that is greater than the sum of its contributing parts. I'm, I'm, the word comes to mind is why business hasn't recognized that, first of all. But, but it also, before that, I was just writing that word down, uh, that's, that language, a spiritual uh, language that you referred to, made me think that it, it, it feels like this is somehow coming full circle, if that makes any sense yeah. to you. It feels like this used to be the way things used to operate. I don't know when, but a long time ago. And, and business, deliberately perhaps, but because they wanted to see, you know, the black and white. They wanted to see the black and red. They wanted to see the numbers in, you know, in, in the, the, the budget. They, they, they had to be black and white. This stuff that you're talking about is a little, a little fuzzy, right? I agree 100%. You know, uh, the history of humanity is one of trade, right? Mm -hmm. Of different Mm -hmm. cultures and communities getting together, trading their wisdom, trading their goods, and working together. That was business. Mm 
And so when people often say to me, you know, how can you self-identify as someone who's spiritual or someone who's artistic mm. and still believe in capitalism? My answer is that I believe in capitalism as in the idea that our economic system shouldn't be run by government, but should be run by individuals trading, growing, exchanging, working with other people. However, I share the disdain that many folks have for today's type of, if you will, crony or corporate capitalism mm. that has tried to strip away all that is beautiful mm. about the possibility of capitalism, which is bringing our full humanness into that exchange. And, you know, I'm not saying that there was ever an ideal time. There was always exploitation in right. trade. There's right. always exploitation, sure. sure. But, but that's the story of humanity, right? We were always flawed people. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, um, there's never a story of perfect business or perfect trade. But as long as we push ourselves to grow and better ourselves, then perhaps our trade and our economic exchanges can get better as well. And I'm cautiously optimistic that we are in one of those moments, maybe, where again, the world is ready to recenter human type thinking and human needs yeah. in business. But the other thing that is, of course, is happening is this climate crisis, which is coming up at the same time. Yes. Um, again, um, forcing us, and let's face it, business is uh, is one of those things that is right at the heart of this that is being looked at very carefully as to how, and, and you know, I, I remember hearing even prior to COVID about how many businesses were starting to look for greener relationships. They 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 wouldn't want to, say, go into a contract or, or a long-term relationship with another company that was not following practices that would really would reflect well on them as well yeah 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 um it's funny to speak to someone who i'm so in tune with i you've yet to say something i disagree with David. i'm a big <laughs> fan of, of disagreement and argument but, but you're exactly right and and it's something that i talk about in connected capitalism mm -hmm. you know i think the only way you can disregard environmental concerns is if you don't care about your children grandchildren <laughs> and future generations mm. there's no way that you can be forward-looking mm. or be someone who values community or family and not put this on the front burner. But what's sad, my sad caveat to that, is that someone who does a lot of business research and does a lot of consulting and talks to people, sadly, I do encounter people almost daily who don't think about what kind of world they're leaving their children or grandchildren or community. And so it comes back to, as you've noted, the opportunity that COVID presented, which is an opportunity to talk about how we care not just for ourselves in this moment, but for our future, for those who are vulnerable in our community, for those who may not have access to the same care, because we're all connected. You know, yeah. I, I'm horrified yeah. to read in the news this morning uh, a discussion of how we may be facing a fifth wave. Mm. And the discussion was saying the reason we may be facing this fifth wave is because rich countries hoarded the vaccines and didn't allow poorer countries to have access. And this disease will spread. It's a global problem, much like the environmental issue is a global issue. And so maybe, maybe, maybe we're starting to adopt a bigger viewpoint. One of, one of the things that I've been talking a lot about lately is it, it, the words, the term science mm. has been co-opted, unfortunately, and it's become politicized, right? Mm, mm. And, and one of the biggest gifts of science is that science gave us the language to speak not in terms of hours, minutes, days, but thousands of years or mm. even millions of years, right? Mm. Science gave us the language to start thinking in broader terms of time. And business tends to push short-termism. 
right? Business tends to think in terms of quarterly reports or annual profits. And that's where the conflicts sometimes come into play. You know, this long-term vision, this community vision versus the self-interestedness. And let me be clear, David, it's not a guaranteed win (laughs) that we're going to head in the right direction. My optimism is that we have an opportunity if good folks take it to steer business in a better direction, but it won't happen without good folks taking the lead and pushing for these type of issues to be top of mind and top of discussion. Right. Um, you had mentioned the, uh, well, I was going to say the co-creativeness of of the situation that you mentioned with the richer nations hoarding the, yes. uh, the vaccines. Uh, doesn't, there again, doesn't really speak well to this whole idea of co- co- co-creation and, and co-cooperation, <laughs> I guess you might say, right? Unfortunately. I agree. No, I agree. And, and it's funny because, you know, one of the arguments that I tend to make is I think this is the role that the arts can Mm. play, actually, to be honest, Mm. because I think that in business environments, we're often not given the space to be challenged in a safe way about how we interact with other people. And so when folks say to me, how do I start to learn about co-creation? How do I practice co-creation? But I can't do it in my workspace. I say, go to the Mm. theater or go to a concert or go to a gallery, go somewhere where the artwork will make you uncomfortable and make you think about the artist as a human or about our society or our culture or our history. Mm. Do it in a, in a creative space. And maybe if you hone those skills of co-creation in a creative space, mm. uh, not that business isn't a creative space, but I'll say in an artistic type creative right. space, then you can bring it to the creative space of business and perhaps we can do better. And I really think the key idea, and this is where the resistance comes from, if you really want to know where the resistance is, co-creation means vulnerability. Sure. To co-create means I have to view you as a human being, not a number, not a cognitive machine, not an ends to profit. And we've been taught for a long time, and you know, certainly in, in Western corporate culture, to park our social beingness yep. at the door of the office, right? right? Yep. We're not told to be friends with our colleagues. We're not told to care about the competition as human beings. Right. And that's what, what we need to do. It's, it's that right. humanness and it's, and it's that vulnerability. And where, again, I'm optimistic is maybe it's a generational thing, but millennials are more likely to demand the rights to be vulnerable in corporate settings, more so than, let's say, the boomers were. Mm. And so times are changing. And as the millennials and others who are more forward thinking um, move up in the workspace, Maybe there'll be more spaces for this type of behavior. And let's hope they do. Let's hope they do. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> it, it, like you said, it, there is a need for change because yep. the, the path we're on isn't working for us. No. So with that, I'm going to tell everyone that you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. And my, my guest here on the show is David Weitzer. He's authored an article in the the conversation.ca it is entitled management is so passe it's co-creation that workers are demanding and david is an assistant professor of administrative studies at york university and he does has he mentioned off the top he's got a couple of books out already uh, 15 paths as well as um, uh, connected capitalism how jewish wisdom can transform work and we're talking to him about the article and uh, it really is about co-creation that we are sort of focusing on here in the article. Uh, David, a couple of things that you you mentioned there made me think of 
why people don't care. You said some people don't care about the future. Some people don't care what the world is that we're leaving. And I'm wondering, is did you get a sense from talking to these people that that is something that is being imposed on them from their position in, in work or it's their real belief? You know what I'm saying? Because that could be something that they are feeling that the corporate world is placing on them that they can't afford to do that. Yes, I, I agree that there's a lot of pressure towards this type of short-term thinking that we've been talking about. And there's a lot of pressure to not bring your full human self. Mm. And so in many corporate environments, they don't want to hear that you're a father or mother or grandfather first. They want to hear that you're a corporate officer first, that you're a worker first, that you're an employee first. And it's it's quite a a destructive cycle. Um, And it's why we must start with this vulnerability and why we need to empower the young. You know, uh, there are times when it is our responsibility to lead and do what's right for the young folks. And it's there's times when we have to let the young folks step up and take their roles and do the leading. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, you know, one of those situations where we have to figure out that balance. Mm -hmm. How do we pass that baton? Because there's still value in the leadership of those who have experience, those who've been around the, I'll say, you know, those who um, have done their time in Mm -hmm. the business world, they have what to offer, but the younger folks, the next generation have what to offer too. Mm -hmm. And if we're not going to advocate as older folks, for environmental issues, for concerns over the longer term, because it's not as salient to us because we say, hey, I got 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it is, and then I'm out. Mm. Uh, Then it's incumbent on us to empower the younger voices who say, no, 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 right? I'm here for the longer haul, and I can't be as short-term in my view as you are. That makes sense. One of the things you mentioned in your article is this panicked responses that you get from speaking with some (laughs) executives, which is, uh, which is, not not surprising, I'm guessing, when you say this, because you mentioned vulnerable and that they must feel extremely vulnerable when you say that because they've been running things a certain way for so long. Um, and that must that must uh, put a lot of fear in them, I'm guessing. <laughs> it does. And so much of it, so much of it comes down to power mm-hmm. and holding on to their power right. and holding on to their control. You know what? What I've what I've come to see you know, I often say that I'm very um cynical about conspiracy theories. Mm. And the reason I'm cynical about conspiracy theories is because as someone who's worked with a lot of powerful folks, I don't see maliciousness. I see weakness. Mm. And many times the bad behavior isn't because somebody really thought out, how can I engage in this? How can I cause harm? It's more people just trying to keep their job, worried about their power, worried about Mm. their control and making bad and weak and poorly thought out decisions. And I think that's what happens here. You know, all the data says you will be a stronger leader. You will have more power if you give power to your team. If you view leadership, as I write in the article, leadership as a verb, not a noun, right? right. It's not about you as leader. It's you leading and you lead by the power that's granted to you by those underneath you. Mm. Seems common sense, right? Mm. Why isn't everyone jumping on it? The only reason to not jump on it is because you're afraid. And the language I often hear, you know, this defensive language of, oh, these entitled millennials, right? How dare (laughs) they try to demand more power, more ability? Why don't they know their place? That's a fear response. You know, that's a fear response. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, true enough. Um, The other thing that comes to mind as you were were talking there, that fear, you know, in in a past life, I, I worked in a couple of different areas, and uh, and I w- I went through a couple of situations, and I'm not sure if you've been here, where 
uh, I thought I had a career ahead of me and it mm-hmm. was taken from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not from my own doing, but because the company folded, it went under, right? And uh, right. that happened right. a couple of times to me. Well, yeah. what, what I learned from that situation is it, nothing is permanent, you know? Yeah. And, and so I started to roll with that idea. Right. So that sense of loss that I felt, I just went, OK, nothing's permanent. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And, and that really opened me up to being free of being afraid of the unknown of what might happen yeah. and what might not happen. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, uh, in, in connected capitalism, um, I make an argument for spiritual language in mm. business, but not religious language. Right. And I define spirituality as having three pillars, and it's controversial. Not everyone needs to agree with this definition. But my working definition of spirituality is meaning, connection, and wonder. Mm. And it's that last piece that I think that you just hit on right now, Mm. which is when we're safe and secure, particularly in our secular workspace environment, we don't have an opportunity for that sense of wonder. Mm. We don't have that sense of, whoa, what? I'm comfortable with the unknown. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable with having my paradigm broken. Right. I'm comfortable with whatever might come, right? I think what you described is, is, is almost a spiritual experience mm-hmm. of being broken down and saying, okay, now let, let, let's just see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you had your paradigm shook. Right. And so you started that search again, new meaning, new connections with new people, new opportunities for mm-hmm. wonder. I think that's a spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. And, and again, sadly, to tie it back to where we started, it's another opportunity that COVID and a crisis presents where many of us, our world was shattered. Our world was, you know, based yeah. on doing certain things, going to certain places, being in certain arenas. And that was taken away from us. Yeah. So it gave a lot of us a chance to say, well, what matters? Where's the meaning? Mm-hmm. What are the connections? Who are the people that I can still connect with? And that sense of wonder, you know, in terms of facing the unknown and uncertainty and still feeling grounded and secure enough Um Another source of my optimism when we talk about the switch to corporate culture, which relates exactly to what you said, is that studies have shown that the vast majority of millennials either plan to switch their jobs within three years Mm. or have switched their jobs Mm. within three years. Mm. So, you know, you talked about the crisis of which I've experienced too, of course, when you you don't have the choice, Mm -hmm. right? But the millennials are even choosing. They're saying, we're going to keep moving. We're going to keep looking. And that's very empowering towards yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. It is. And, and it's very interesting because how does, how does a management or a company uh, sort of try to deal with that when they can't hold that over them? <laughs> because, you that's know, right. You're going to lose right. your job. You know? <laughs> uh, that's okay. I'm okay with that. It's, you know, it's like, <laughs> right? There's no threat there. It's, uh, you know, so, so there is a need for that, that shift. Uh, that you're talking about. So uh, as we, we're starting to finish up here, but you know, this more human-centric work future that you, you're re- referring to and no going That's back right. to the before world. No, no, no. There's no going back to the before, before world. And I think quite frankly that this is going to be true for everyone because some people might listen to our conversation, David, and say, okay, you know, that freedom can be afforded to folks who have a certain level right. of education sure. or yeah. a certain level of experience. Yeah. But the truth is we're moving in a direction of rising automation, Mm. Rising AI, you know, what they call the end of work, right? This shift where so many jobs that don't have this creative freedom will disappear. And so it's going to be incumbent on all human beings that want to be productive to find ways to emphasize what they can do, which a machine can't. And that's being human, Mm. right? Mm. Being imaginative, being Mm. creative, Mm -hmm. being vulnerable, being emotional. These are the things that will be valuable. 
in a future workspace that is automated. And so even if you don't feel like what we're talking about speaks to you today, I'm hoping that it will start to resonate as the global climate shifts and you realize that no matter what your job is, no matter where you work, being fully human, being fully present and finding a way to co-create and create these meaningful, connective, wonder-filled relationships will be your goal, whether you're at the top of the hierarchy or the bottom. Right. Uh, and seeing the bigger picture, I guess, uh, and, and looking at the bigger picture and doing things on behalf of the bigger picture and not just yourself, not looking at just yourself um, and right. what can I get out of this. The, the other thing, I wrote down uh, something before I spoke to you when after I read the article, and I was, I was wondering, and you do address this in the article to some degree, about the, the, the threats or the, the, the possibility that there are um, you know, chances when you, you, stay, you take uh, and start to change things. Uh, but mm-hmm. I wrote down, and I know you know this one, the weakest link, right? We, we're yeah, vulnerable yeah. to whoever the weakest link is. Um, if, if somebody says, well, I'm not going to uh, pay you that, or I'm not going right. to whatever it is, somebody else could step in and say, well, I will. Right. And, and that's the problem. That's right. If we can't if we can't join or be united, uh, if as long as somebody is willing to cave in. Right. Well, that's right. And, and you know, the, the sad truth that I've come to see in my time in business schools and, and consulting is that there's always a price. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that that's unfortunate because I think that as long as we view the work environment as a space of competition, in this unhealthy sense. I think there's a healthy view of competition and an Mm. unhealthy view of competition. The healthy view of competition is the one that says, we're not competing as human beings. We're going to create a space for all of us to feel comfortable, all of us to feel safe, all of us to feel vulnerable. And the competition is around innovation. So I'm not gonna try to harm you as a person, but I am going to view you as a competitor as I try to outthink, right? And create a product that's better. You know, one of the things that I talk about as an ethical professor is I say innovations around ethics. So let's say green technology shouldn't be proprietary, right? If we're going to compete, mm. let's compete on certain <laughs> elements, but not others. Because if we yeah. find a way to reduce, yeah. let's say, emissions by 10% in our industry, right. we should want all of our competitors to That's have. right. Because That's we right. should want everyone to do that. Don't compete on that. So yeah. don't compete on price. Don't compete on inhumanity. Yeah. Don't compete on cruelty. Don't right. compete on, you know, who can cause the most harm to the environment. Compete right. on the better things. Who can right. innovate the best? Who can come up with the most interesting products? Who can create the most type of good? Who can thrive, not just on a financial side of things, mm. but on a social side and an emotional side and a spiritual side as well. That is David Weitzer. He is an assistant professor of administrative studies at York University, and uh, he is also the author of Connected Capitalism and 15 Paths. It's been a pleasure talking to him about his article in the conversation entitled Management is So Passe, It's Co-Creation That Workers Are Demanding. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. Back with more right here on Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome back to the show... 
And I guess it, it's kind of funny saying that because Krista Couture, who is my guest, also works here at Element FM. And you, so you are familiar with her, but she was on the show previously as well. And that had to do with the release of her book that came out. I guess it was about a year ago, wasn't it, Krista? That's right. Yeah. September 2020. Yes. How to Lose Everything. And uh, we had her on the show to talk about that. And a lot has happened in a year. Krista has uh, has now uh, moved on to uh, dabble in some film work. She has an animated uh, film that has uh, actually won in the um, American Indian Film Festival. And it has won the Best Animated Short Film and uh, congratulations to her. That was announced earlier this month. Uh, Krista, mm-hmm. congratulations. Thank you. It also won Best Animated Short at uh, the Imagine This Film Festival, just to toot my own horn. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank of you. Of course, I've had, and you haven't been uh, also not busy on other fronts. You have a new single that, it, if it hasn't come out yet, it is uh, will be coming out. And so uh, you're very busy on all kinds of fronts. Yeah, juggling a lot of projects, but I think that's kind of how I like it. You know, I, a bit of music, a bit of writing, like you said, kind of bringing some film work back in, keeps it interesting. Mm. Now, Chris, I'd like to ask you about your book. It's that book set things going for you, maybe in a, in a different direction, or at least it opened up uh, things for you. you. You, you talk about your life, how to lose everything. And, and that's been a year now. So I'm wondering, looking back on the year with that book, what what do you reflect on? It's been so meaningful, um, the release of the book. And, you know, because pandemic, I didn't get to bring it to people in person. But the best part, I feel like anytime you put kind of art out <laughs> into the world, especially work that's personal and based on your own story, mm. is getting the, the the response, you know. And so people who have read the book, who, you know, message me or like through some of the online events I've done, you know, talk to me about what it means to them and they share a bit of their own story. That's always, it's so moving. It's so moving to me when people want to share something about themselves in response, you know, because that's the conversation then. And it's not just you talking into a void. Mm. <laughs> and so that, that's been really meaningful is just knowing that people are reading it and that it's, you know, cause it, they're moving people to reflect on their own losses and their own experiences. I did get to this October, um, go to my first in-person literary festival. I'd done a handful last year, mm. you know, on Zoom. Right. But I got to go to one in person at mm-hmm. the Vancouver uh, International Writers Fest. And it was so satisfying to finally have that moment of doing a reading mm. in front of a live audience and mm. have people line up after and talk. And that, okay, at least I got one night of this. <laughs> mm. Um but it's been really it's been a really fulfilling experience you know i worked really hard on the book and a book is a lot of work it's yeah. a lot of words yeah. <laughs> to write down and and so seeing it kind of get out into the world and and start to find its audience is uh is yeah i feel really proud of it no i know you said it's it's great having that you finally got there to have this face-to-face, do a reading and get some feedback and and meet some people well, is there one thing that jumps out at you that may have been surprising to you about the book that you didn't expect it to do or to reach people on some level? 
Well, you know, when I when I wrote it and we were when we planned, we we're working towards the the pub date of you know, September 2020. We didn't know that would be during a pandemic. Mm, right. <laughs> and so I think what was surprising and what some of the conversations about the book are connected to the book that I could did not anticipate or expect was how we're going through a collective grief. You know, mm. here it's this book about my very personal experiences right. with grief. And then during this time, you know, we've all always had our own like losses, but mm. we're, it, there's a collective loss and there's a kind of loss that we can all really relate to each other, whether it's the loss of potential in the last two years or the, um, the sense of safety or the, you know, actual lives lost during the pandemic. And so it's been interesting because it's a lot of the conversations, you know, at events or with the media have been around kind of COVID and grief, um, which has been an interesting frame. And yeah, that I did not, I <laughs> did not plan to write a book about, about that kind of grief, but um, that's been a, a point of connection. Yeah, that that's very interesting. And this uh, this new uh, little animated uh, film that you've done, uh, How to Lose Everything, a Field Guide, uh, is an extension of that to some degree, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the short film is um, based on a passage from the book. The very last two pages of the book is called A Field Guide, and I used that text as the narration for this film. And when I wrote it in the book, I just imagined it being animated. I saw it kind of coming to life in that way. And then I was really lucky um, with a grant from the Canada Council for the Arts to uh, create the film. I co-directed it with Becky O'Neill. And um, and then through the process of making this, this short film from my book, we've actually developed and funded what's going to be a series of five short films about different perspectives of loss. And that series is called How to Lose Everything. Mm. Uh, so same title as, as my book. And the stories will branch out. They're not going to just be my stories anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of grown from, from this idea, from the book. Um, and that's just been a, a project that I'm now so, so passionate about. You're, you're producing, but you, you also directed this short video as well. Yeah, I directed the first short film, co-directed mm-hmm. with Becky, and um, and it's doing like as we mentioned the awards, doing the festival circuit right now. Um, and the other four films I developed um, while we were while we were making this film. Mm. Um, the grant that I got from the Canada Council was called Creation Accelerator, and and it was the purpose of the grant was to develop a bigger project. So like I had the first idea of a short film, but the funding was there to develop something larger. Mm. And I wasn't sure that was going to be, and I really, I owe it. I'm, you know, a debt of gratitude to our executive producer at CBC, Grigina Krupa, who said, Oh, well maybe it's other short films. Hmm. <laughs> Just like, Oh yes, that's it. <laughs> and um, I worked with four other indigenous writers and each person has written a short piece about a personal experience with loss and each short film will be animated by a different indigenous artist as well. And so it covers, you know, we've got different nations. We'll have different, um, the films will be in English, but also the indigenous language of the writer. Mm. There's also going to be French language versions. Um, and those films are now just getting into production. And, you know, animation is a very slow, very long process. Yes, yes. So it might not be until all five are done that even mine gets to be sort of public as mm. much as it's doing the festival thing. Yep. 
Um, I think the five will be released as a series from, right. on, on CBC Gem. But, yeah. And I wish I could say when that will be. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Down the road. Yes. Um, when we get there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it's been really, I mean, it's been wonderful to work with so many other artists and um, and now produce this series. And as much as it was sort of my vision, this, this series, it's really bringing these other artists' stories and, and work to the foreground in mm-hmm. each of the other films. Now, you narrated this as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this just popped into my head. I'm just wondering, do you see a connection with this also around reconciliation? With this film? The sense of loss? Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I did one one interview at one point, um, this guy, David Newland, who's a wonderful artist and also a broadcaster. And and he talked about kind of the losses in the margins mm. of of the book. Mm. Because in the book, I, I talk a bit about my dad, who's Cree, and mm-hmm. there's a, a chapter where I talk about my uh, traditional name, Saini Bay, mm-hmm. and a bit about my culture. But and I, but I don't talk about where connections with that might have been lost. You, and I think there's sort of maybe an inference or mm-hmm. an understanding that that you know I feel like for every Indigenous person, there's a sense of loss, right? Yeah. Um, and so. In that way, yeah, yeah. In that way, yeah, maybe connected to reconciliation. I mean, my own experience with, you know, reclamation and piecing things together, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and what's mine, and mm-hmm. um, what's my story, and um, always learning more about that. When I think of you and the word loss, I saw you, and I saw a, a blank slate that you were in front of, and I thought mm-hmm. maybe that's maybe that's the interesting thing about loss it gives you that blank blank slate to move forward in to start planning you talk about yes there's this loss but you can move you can move on from it as well and that's i think going back to the video that that you talk about that in the in the short video as well in the short film yeah yeah which which again is the is the my sort of parting words in the book mm-hmm. yeah i think um you know, being known for loss is because the, the work I make most often explores the subject. And mm-hmm. so it's just, a thing, you know, but of course I have other things that go on in my life. I just don't make art out of all of them. Right. But, um, it, and yeah, it's true. It, it creates, I don't want to call it an opportunity, but when you, when you go through a massive change, eventually you have to figure out what's next mm. and what's going to be different. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you, you know, there's the capacity or the resources to define that for yourself um, as, as much as you can. And yeah. And so in the film and in that passage of the book, I, that's what I talk about. You know, you, you, when you go through a huge change, you lose part of yourself, you know, you don't know what's going to come next, but you know, we kind of have to just take it one step at a time and see what comes, that there's some, you know, mystery ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there might be ways to take ownership of that. You know, it's, it's an area, you're right, it's full of contradiction. I'm full of contradiction and contrast when I think about loss myself, because exactly, it's like there's a, there's a drive. We have this human, you know, it's even our survival instinct to to push through and find something and it's also such human nature to make meaning we 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 are little meaning makers we want to find meaning mm. in everything we do mm. and around us and so 
that striving and that search for meaning is 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 I think what's behind a lot of my work about loss is taking these things that have been so so painful and so heartbreaking and trying to create some meaning out of it, trying mm. to uh, move myself forward in some way. Right. Mm. right. Now, with with these uh, these new animated uh, short uh, films that you're you're making, you're going to be. Are you going to be directing all of them? Producing? What's no, your I'm I, I'm the I'm the producer okay. along with my producing partner Michelle uh, Michelle St. John. Right. Yes. And she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I'm series director, so I have a kind of overall creative vision for the series. But mostly the the writers and the animators. Um, most of the, a couple of the films, the animators are the directors. There's one, Taco mm. the Partridge and Megan Kayak Monteith are co-directing together. Terrell Calder is directing one. Um, and so it's it. I will be kind of supporting those people with as much support as they need, but mm-hmm. it's it's going to be directed by each of the artists. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. You are listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Krista Couture. She, of course, is uh, someone's voice you will hear here on Element FM as our midday DJ. She's an award-winning performing and recording artist. And writer, we had her on the show a year ago talking about her book, How to Lose Everything. And she has just uh, been uh, awarded an award, two awards, as uh, Krista told us about for, for this short animated film, How to Lose Everything, A Field Guide. So her film is now in uh, the, the film circuit going out and making its rounds. And congratulations to her on these things. And she also has... Uh, put out some new music it's a new single uh, to us which we're going to talk about uh, Krista I can't remember how long ago was it that uh, Safe Harbor came out when, when did that one get released that CD Safe Harbor was March of 2020 Mother them creatures Okay. Just at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Great and, timing. <laughs> and of course, uh, that that's a, a beautiful uh, EP, I guess, because it's like what six songs or so. It's yeah, five or six. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, and so now this new CD or this new song to us. Um, tell me about that because that's it's a really interesting take on things, and and somehow uh, I hear elements of of things that. Are from your book and from this uh, this animated short film in there. Some of the lines seem to cross over a little bit. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, our human ways that we tally up the days. We fold the corner of a page to keep our spot, and then we act amazed to see a number change, like it's us that's rearranged when it's not. Um, to Us is a song I wrote actually years ago. I think it was the end of 2015. It was New Year's Eve, mm. tipping into 2016. Okay. And I was home alone. And 2015 had for me been a particularly difficult year personally. Some of the stuff that's in the book, like going through uh, my divorce mm. and uh, getting thyroid cancer, which was mm. putting my career as a songwriter on hold. 
and I'd moved like four times and changed jobs three times. It had just been a real doozy of a year. Mm. And I wrote this song as a kind of toast to like, that was hard. That was a mess. I'm not going to jinx things because maybe it'll get worse, but like <laughs> we made it this far. Here mm. we go. <laughs> um, that's kind of the feeling I had. I was still feeling sort of festive in a way, but mm. also like, wow, what a, a, can we swear? No, what a, you know, poop show. So, <laughs> um, and then I just kind of had that song. I had like recorded it, you know, on my phone and put it on Facebook and I would mm. sort of reshare it every year. My, my happy, unhappy new year song mm. and then enter 2020. 2021 and it seemed like the right time to record it, it seemed mm. like this is a song that people will now probably really relate to this might resonate the sense of like okay this has been hard we have made it through we're still going through it <laughs> like but can we at least sort of you know count our blessings or celebrate that we're in the middle of this mess together like mm. is there something some kind of grace here mm. and I recorded the song with Steve Dawson, who I've made two albums with. Um, he's down in Nashville mm. and he's doing these remote sessions during COVID. So mm-hmm. I recorded the vocal here. He recorded kind of guitar and, and pedal steel there. Right. Gary Holmes, um, Gary Craig recorded the drums here in Toronto. Jeremy Holmes recorded the bass in Vancouver and Chris Jester <laughs> on piano in Vancouver. Anyway, so we did this whole kind of remote studio thing that was very fun. Right. And it's meant to be this like, celebratory but realistic mm. <laughs> new year song right. hopefully it's going to become maybe it'll be a seasonal new favorite for right. folks <laughs> right. I, i've heard that that kind of recording uh, referred to as covid style you know totally yeah <laughs> and and it reminded me of that that song that came out a number of years you know gangdom style so uh yeah yeah <laughs> But, um, yeah, do you think that that is something that may be utilized more going into the future about, you know, not being so afraid to record remotely? Oh, yeah. And I think in many ways we were on that path already because Mm. people have, you know, home studios Mm -hmm. and you can set up decent gear, even pretty affordably at home that people were already doing kind of long distance collaborations, you know, sending stuff to other writing partners, other musicians, or I mean, on safe Harbor, the, the, the violin parts, you know, um, the woman, you know, did it herself in Prince Edward Island and we Mm -hmm. added it in Ottawa. (laughs) Um, So there was already some of that happening, but I think during COVID it's become, like you say, so it's COVID style. It's become um, ubiquitous, Mm -hmm. right. To do stuff online and remotely. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to stay. I think now that more people are introduced to that um, and how that can work and how that can be successful. um, Yeah. I think it's going to, there's going to be more. I'm glad you mentioned violin. It makes me think uh, going back to your short animated film um, of, of how to lose everything, a field guide, because it reminded me of the music in that, and because there's specifically someone that, that is used on that film that I've always wanted, one, to get on the show, and two, because I've always wanted to use uh, her in my own songs as well, Chris Dirksen. And, uh, Chalice Chris Dirksen, Oh yeah. my goodness, she's yeah. so amazing. And uh, that, the, how did that work out? 
I've known Chris for a long time. Mm. We we both lived in Vancouver. I mean, oh, we both yeah. grew up in Edmonton, yeah. and we even went to the same high school that we didn't know each other <laughs> at the time. Wow. And then we both lived in Vancouver, and then we both moved to Toronto. But we we toured together a bunch mm. um, years ago. And and then when I was making this film, I like texted her and said, "Would you compose the score?" And she said, "Absolutely, thank goodness." So um, she's she's a remarkable talent, yeah. and so she did a. A kind of through score there's this cello piece um throughout and it's just her and her cello i mean mm-hmm. she layered a few different parts so like percussive yeah. part and then like some arco and yeah. um she's she's incredible i'm, I'm such an enormous fan of her, her work yeah. and so it was a real honor i mean we're we're, we're buds but it was yeah. still such an honor <laughs> that she uh was able to to create the score yeah i saw her uh out at the woodland cultural center on six nations mm. geez i don't know mm-hmm. how many years ago and i was simply blown away of course uh, you can't help yeah. but be blown away when you watch her uh, live and what she can do uh, she's an amazing talent um so uh, congratulations on, on that front as well so now uh Safe Harbor, as you said, that came out in 2020. What are your reflections on that album and looking back on that? Yeah, I mean, Safe Harbor, similar to the book, you know, it came out later that year. It, like, I didn't get the chance to to give it to people in person. Mm. And um, mm. I mourned that, you know, mm. not being able to, like, especially like music, you know, yeah, music yeah. is meant to be made together um, or, or shared together at some point. And so I, I you know, this sent it out into the world in its digital way and on CDs and vinyl and, and hoped it would reach people's ears and hearts. And so, yeah, it was a different experience than my other like six albums Mm. because I wasn't, wasn't getting to like, yeah, be on the stage and, and, you know, be sort of looking people in the eye. Um, But it's okay too, because I, I, even when Safe Harbor came out, I'd really stepped back from live performance. I was going to do some shows when it came out. Of course, they got canceled, but um, I had already shifted away from performing music live. And so it was just sort of like a, almost like <laughs> affirmation of like, oh, right, I don't really do that part as much. I mean, I would have loved to do it at the time. But yeah, it's been finding its way. And and um, and I, I love that EP. You know, it was my first mm. totally piano-based project. Mm. And um, that's the one CD my daughter plays a lot uh-huh, <laughs> of mine. Okay, yeah. She doesn't play my other stuff. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, hopefully it's still kind of reaching people, you mm. know, even this almost year and a half later. Yeah. No, I, I think it is. Of course, it's it's beautifully done. And congratulations to you. I want to come back to, to us because you said that was all done remotely, of course, COVID style. But mm-hmm. after you got all those parts together, uh, you then have to uh, pull it all together and and uh, get it uh, mixed and mastered. I guess you did that here in Toronto or some, did, was that done remotely as well? Steve does the mix, the, did the mixing. He's mm-hmm. always done the mixes. So he... He and in the past we've done that remotely. It's interesting. Yeah, like I said, there's always been ways that this has been present. Because mm-hmm. even my last album, which I recorded in person in Nashville with him, my last album with him, mm. um, which was long time leaving, um, that I went came back to Toronto and then he was just emailing me the mixes because I couldn't stay in Nashville long enough to to listen to those. So mm-hmm. he mixed that and you know sent me the files and we emailed back and forth and uh, and then it got mastered in I think Vancouver. Mm. 
Okay, Krista, um, it's been really fascinating speaking with you, and I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to uh, join us on the show and talk about all these wonderful things you have going on. The other thing that I wanted to mention, um, of course, and this is sort of like a swan song for us here, because you're actually going to be leaving Element FM to go off and do these things, and rightfully so. You're busy. You have your hands full with other things. I want to wish you all the best, of course, with it, uh, and um, and you know, with, with all your future endeavors. And I hope that uh, you won't be a stranger and you'll come back and talk to, especially me here on the show at some point. Of course, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm moving on from Element, but uh, it's been a really fulfilling time here and, and we'll definitely keep in touch. All right. Have you got anything else on the horizon that we haven't talked about that you want to share or tell <laughs> I think us that's, about? I think that's all the balls in the air, yeah. <laughs> no more music? You know, I maybe I think I had so much fun making this single that mm. I feel like I might experiment with, you know, doing a, another couple singles and, and not doing the full EP or album route. But it's been fun just having one song to share and talk about. So mm. there'll probably be another new song in the new year. I guess that's uh, also the way things are have moved uh, away from CDs and albums, right? Uh, songs yeah. are being released one song at a time now. Yeah, yeah, different landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Krista, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for taking the time. And, uh, you know, always a pleasure to speak with you. Congratulations on all your successes. Love your music, love your show. And I'm so happy for you on so many fronts uh, with with what's going on. And and, uh, can't wait to meet up in person at some point, not do this remotely. (laughs) Again, yeah. Thank you, David. All right, you take care. That is the voice of Krista Couture, and she has been my guest here on Moment of Truth. She is an award-winning performing and recording artist. She's also the author of How to Lose Everything, which has now been turned into, uh, well, at least a a short uh, film that is called How to Lose Everything, a field guide, and will be released at a future date been a pleasure speaking with uh, Krista. Be sure to check out her latest song. It is entitled To Us. I'm going to play a little bit of that. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and we'll see you again tomorrow. Well, I'm not one to tell you, hun. It'll be all right. Of course it might be, but here's the rub. Not tonight. To losses and divorces To all the good intent that missed the mark Happy New Year to illness To stillness and to brilliance To that which didn't kill us That made us hard Well, I'm not one to tell you, hun We're in the clear Of course we might be But here's the rub Probably not this This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.